And I am on too. Andrew Marquez, how are you doing, man? I am hanging in. How are you? Good. It's a Thursday. Trying to compliment your shirt with my tie. I think it's a good blue on blue thing. Is it a is it the seminary though? Is that the it's not. You can't wear those now that your job, you know, because you are I'm holding in my hand a cup you gave me years ago from New Orleans. (laughs) Never went there, but apparently they have great coffee. So um, and they handed out tiny little uh what are those uh Tabasco bottles. New Orleans had the best setup for gifts and stuff like that. Good coffee. So, well, hey, it's another day of OTX NT and I got another episode, kind of this one. If you watched last week's, it's going to tie right into it. Um, Talking about interpreting the Bible. So um, you want to say anything else before we start off and pray? Yeah, well, I just, I'm trying to get into the habit of reminding our our viewers, our listeners, you know, go ahead and rate this, uh, share this, comment on this uh, podcast. whatever you want to call it, video series, uh, because it does help us get the word out. And we just, you know, would like to do that. But it's an exciting topic. What's our topic today, Ben? Uh, So is scripture sufficient for our interpretation, our understanding of the Bible? So last week, you and I interacted with this article um, about, uh, you know, let the scripture interpret scripture. And uh, we weren't really big fans of it, uh, because what it was essentially saying was that Scripture can't interpret Scripture. Um, So today, though, you and I are going to talk about something that's kind of close to us, which is, um, okay, so, you know, what, what, how do we do the Scriptures interpreting Scripture um, when lots of people say, no, you got to have history, or you got to have science, or you got to have some sort of social science, or uh, you know, critical lens to look at everything. So let's, I want to talk about that and kind of, uh, kind of uh, show you where you and I come from uh, and uh, kind of how we think that should play out and kind of our thoughts on what we bring to the text in general. So that's a big topic, um, but we're going to, we can take it into multiple episodes if we need to, which I think we're going to have to anyways. So yeah. Very, very exciting. So let's go to prayer and then we can Hopefully, ask God's blessing on this conversation. All right, let's pray. Uh, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Lord, help us. All right, so you teach on this stuff more than I do. So, what are you going to? How do you want to start off? Because I'll I'll add a little something. But I thought, man, you're the one doing a lot of this more often than me in an academic setting. If I think it'd be helpful if I kind of just do a real brief communication thing, um, if you'll uh, entertain me with that, uh, and I will, and we'll then focus kind of in. But if you've ever taken a communication class, especially managerial communication or hermeneutics for the Bible you'll often hear about how uh, communication takes place, which we would have, say, an author, and the author is going to embed what he wants to communicate in some sort of uh, medium, uh, text, language, uh, email, perhaps, and that is going to be the medium that the reader then will interact with, and the reader then will try to decode that message that the author intended through that medium And if it's successful, communication has taken place. The problem we have when we're looking at the Bible is that the author is dead. 
and so or not accessible to us. So hermeneutics is usually defined as interpreting ancient writings. And so we're left with a text that we don't have the ability to go back to the author and ask for clarification. I can't ask Matthew to please clarify that for me. I didn't understand. And I can't ask Matthew if I got it right. And so I am left with the text. And so the big question over time, it was believed that you had the ability to get back to the author through the text. But in the modern era, the shift kind of got away that the author was not accessible. So we had to go to the text. In the postmodern era, the belief was there was no real value in the text, except for what I, the reader, brought myself. And so the text uh, used to be viewed as a window to the reader. Then it became almost like stained glass that I kind of deciphered uh, what, what the picture was in the text. And then it became really a mirror that just reflected my own perspective. And I, I, I'm stealing a little bit of that from Dr. Rick uh, Durst, but um, forgive me if I didn't do it right. <laughs> so uh, that leaves us again, where do we find the meaning? Is it in the reader over here? Is it in the author over here? Or is it in the text? And you and I, I would say are both in agreement that it's gotta be the text. That's what we have. Um, would, would that be accurate? Absolutely, 100%. It's, it's in the text. And I, so I think you bring up something immediately is the idea that, um, you know, all of us are going to bring something to it because of where we come from, how we read. I mean, so there's a lot of little things that we're wading into as we talk about just interpreting the text. Like many of us need to try to kind of take what we believe about the world around us and try to stop and pause and try to read the text as best as we can without trying to inject what I, what I want or what I think the text should mean. Um, you know, I think case in point, this is where I think you and I begin to get, formulate where, why and how we believe we should do things um, kind of based on just, I think you and I can both say in our own lives, we probably have read the text in such a way that we brought something to it to want to make it mean something different. So I remember, um, uh, reading the prodigal son story and, um, you know, in my own life, enjoying, uh, my own sin and who I was in that and reading the prodigal son story from the standpoint of, I really want to feel good about where I'm at in terms of all the things that I've done and, and where I'm, how I enjoy where I'm at currently and not. Um, but I, so I put that lens on the prodigal son was all about, a, somebody who is a Christian who decides he's going to love and leave his sin and then at some point maybe get back to it and be welcomed back in. And when you actually read the context, you realize it has nothing to do with that. It's not about like, hey, go off and enjoy your little, you know, time of sin and then come back when you want to and recognize it has nothing to do. But I injected into that because in my own current situation, I wanted it to mean that. I wanted it to mean that it was okay for me to continue to live where I'm at because God will just say, come on back, because that was what the meaning was to me. But it's not when you actually look at the text. Um, so that, in my mind, those are certain things that I see like I'm very capable and able to bring a lot of junk with me to a text to try to make it say something. Yeah, and that's, that's where this it gets really difficult. And there's a lot of philosophy that goes behind how does communication work and psychology gets into the mix. And uh, generally, the the old view is falling out of favor. And so even, even like politically, the, the Constitution, um, is there meaning in the Constitution or is it a living document that the readers uh, can essentially shape as they want to understand it for the 21st century? Uh, if, if you've ever wondered how we got where we've gotten as a country with the view of the Constitution, 
it's the same progression that, that took place in the 1900s. And so when we find ourselves today, the, the dominant belief, I would say, is that the text is malleable and the meaning resides in the reader. And so you're justified to pull out whatever it is that you wish. And, and we would say that that is grossly contrary to scripture itself. And it uh, dissolves really any discourse at the end of the day, because nobody could claim a superior interpretation than another. And, and then even relaying the interpretation that you've come up with is completely up to the reader or the listener to react however they want. So if you said, yeah. I believe two plus two is four, I could say, I don't agree with that. And therefore I think you said two plus two equals five because it's, it's up to me to take whatever you yeah. have placed. And so we, we have no ability to really communicate or rely on communication, but experience tells us that's not the case that we actually succeed yeah. in communication. So I think it's well, an easy sell to say, no, 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 no. There, there might be some things that can get lost in translation, but generally communication is possible. And because of that, we should be able to kind of backwards uh, track this thing to a text and say, yeah, there is a, an ability to pull meaning from a text. So, I mean, I, I think one of the things that you and I talked about, I think last week, which is where we end up in church today, we don't intentionally want to do it, but like when we start to use words like, uh, I feel that this is what this means, or to, this is what it means to me, is what I'm saying is, I know it says one thing, but this is what I kind of, and it might be true what it says. And you're saying, I feel, and I kind of get it. But a lot of the time it's, I, I kind of have interpreted it this way because I want it to mean this. And so let's talk about then, how do we understand the Bible? So like one common thing that you and I have always gotten in and how we grew up and how we were taught a lot of the time was um, that you've got to, when you open the Bible to try to truly understand, you've got to have history. You've got to have, um, you've got to have science. You've got to have archaeology. Um, you have to have all of those tools at your disposal to truly understand the text. What, what, what tool do you think really out of all of that is probably the most important one uh, um, in, in that. Because uh, one thing I did leave off is grasp of original language, right? Yeah. That one, I actually do think is important, right? I, I don't think you, I think if you're going to get to the most accurate, you've always got to go back to what was in that original text, that original language, because English translations, any translation is just a translation. That's what it is. Um, but beyond like being able to look and say, what was the original word behind that English? Um, and, and as an English reader, if, if all you do is read English, that's fine. There's a lot of great tools to help you with that. Uh, but uh, what we want to say is if we're going to truly find what, what the text is saying um, and, and how to clear up if we have any clarity issues, I think that's probably the greatest tool is just grasp of language. But how much beyond that do you think you really need? Yeah, I, I, think, I think very little, really. And, and this is where we would be kind of on the outs with even other conservative interpreters. For sure. I've got Kostenberger's text here, Invitation to Biblical Interpretation. And, and he proposes a triad of literature, history, and theology, and bringing those three aspects to your interpretive uh, lens. And um, again, I think all those things can be helpful, but are they, are they necessary? If I had to choose something, it's literature. <clears throat> and, and that is not to say that history and theology don't matter. <clears throat> it's to say that literature encompassing the tools of grammar, syntax, uh, contextual reading, and all of that are, are what I need because I'm, I'm working with the text, and those are the tools of interpretation of the text specifically. 
And, uh, and generally, history, I think both of you, you and I agree, generally can be ascertained just through the text itself. I, I don't necessarily yeah. um, need a whole uh, armchair history. And uh, the surprising thing is that we dig more stuff up out of the ground. We find out that our historical reconstruction was wrong. We built interpretation and more probably application on a text based on historical lenses that we brought to it to find out that the historical lenses were uh, inaccurate. And, and so we got to be real careful. But generally, I, I think if you're dealing in the terms of grammar, syntax, language tools to truly understand, and, and a lot of that's translation, uh, yeah. that, that's imperative. You, you have to have that because those are just the tools of language. Yeah. And, um, a text is language, it's words. We have to understand the text. But, but outside of understanding the text, you really don't. I, I would say, you know, I've grown up being told in school, all of that, like, okay, if I'm really going to understand, I've got to dig, I've got to know, and we've got to consult these histories. But I think you bring up some points, and these are ones I want to throw out, which have gotten to me where I've gotten to. And so call me reactionary, but I'm going to say it anyways. Um, I think we have to, if, if I'm going to base my interpretation of the Bible on the Bible plus something else, I need to be ready that I'm going to constantly have to rethink my interpretations because of our, because the, the other something else is not, is, is going to change. It's going to morph. Right. Uh, I remember, uh, you know, you just, you don't have to think about not even that far ago, like long ago, I, I remember um, listening to Discovery Channel. And I think at one point we were saying that all of us, uh, that we could, we could, we could take all the human race and we could say, uh, oh, we found that they could, we, we trace back to one man, one woman, right? Um, okay, and then that changes later on to now, no, we're back to like, oh, it's a pool of people and never started, right? So if, if I'm beginning my premises of trying to understand the Bible based on that, even within the past decade, we've seen what we thought, oh, no, this is true, this is history, this is, this is, this is real, this is science be morphed because the scientific method has challenged that. It's always morphing. And so I get very um, cautious about wanting to bring into my view a world, uh, 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 into, my, into my textual understanding, something that can morph. Uh, the word of God doesn't change is what we're, we're told, right? That, that everything else withers like grass, but the word of God remains the same. Uh, and, and I think when you begin to start saying, well, let me pull history in. Um, well, history is completely incomplete, right? We have an idea of what it is, but how many things like you brought up are, have not been unearthed yet? How many things have been destroyed or hidden in other countries? So we'll have scholars that'll say, well, we know this to be true. Well, we know this to be a true at this point in time based on what we have. Guess what we have that doesn't go away? The text. The text has never changed. The text has always been. It's complete, a complete canon. So that's kind of my beginning of my rant. I'm starting to get all hyper, man. And, you know, again, I, I agree with everything you're saying. That this is the type of thing that gets frustrating because, uh, especially when you look back and you realize that you fell into that. So the first Bible study I ever taught in college, I had found a Navigator Press a book on Philippians, and it spent all this detail explaining what a Roman prison cell would have been like and how it was a hole, and you were in there with your feces, and it's just a big nasty mess. And in the midst of all that, Paul is joyful. And I went and taught that Sunday school class and emphasized really how terrible Paul's situation was. And you know, it really made a good sell. Like you know, no matter no matter how bad it gets, 
we have joy. That was the, the theme. And the truth is the text told me that without any knowledge of the prison situation. The text said, in all things, I rejoice. And I could have gotten to that conclusion. But what I ended up doing is creating a historical backdrop that I don't agree with anymore. You know, actually, I think he was, uh, it, when he was in Rome, I think he was under house arrest and able to walk around and having a, a pretty good time uh, being a witness. I think Philippians may have been written from Caesarea. The book I had said it was from Ephesus. And what ends up happening is I create a backdrop that really sells the message, so to speak, in a rhetorical fashion. And then someone takes that. And if they find out that the history that I had provided was wrong, somehow it seems to unravel maybe the meaning. And so you can actually hurt faith in the scripture by creating an artificial historical backdrop that wasn't necessary to begin with. Uh, you know, we know that he's in prison in some sense. We know that people are mocking him by proclaiming the gospel, but he gives God glory in the midst of it all. He knows he can be content in all things and that he rejoices. It's a major theme of the book that is all there. We, we don't need to land the plane that it's Ephesus, Caesarea, or Rome. We don't really have to worry about that. But there's a need sometimes in preaching and teaching to give people more, you know? And so I do think that that's a problem. And that's just an issue with history. I think you, you're bringing up science. Uh, but also, you know, Ur, 150 years ago, there was no city of Ur. It never existed until we dug it up. Uh, several years ago, Belshazzar was never a king. Uh, it, it, the Bible got it wrong. Somehow they got the name wrong. And then, oh, we found out all these records of Belshazzar being son of, is it Nabonidus? Nabonidus, yeah. Co-regent. Co and wow, looks, the Bible is true. But you had people that were actually making apologies for the biblical narrative and uh, trying to preach that these weren't important uh, things anyway, right? And, and trying to uh, get people to hold to the faith, despite the fact that we knew historically these were not true, only to find out historically they turned out to be very true. And it actually brings a date for the book much earlier in time because that name Belshazzar seems to have been forgotten, right? So, I mean, these are the things that, that happens and why it gets so dangerous when you put these lenses over um, and, and it, it can disrupt people's faith long-term. Uh, you know, and you bring up a point that I think is important is you don't play around with this because I, I just think of like the frustration as a someone trying to understand the Bible of like, ah, oh, cred, I got to go rethink my how I believe that text once this discovery has been made or or all of that. But like, yeah, you're right. If, if I build this up on man, like this is what that text really meant and what it was and they come and they dig them up. They're like, yeah, no, actually, this really wasn't what that was like. Um, yeah, you can begin to see, well, crud, what's wrong with the Bible really doesn't mean it or not, because you'll tie in my view of what I brought to it uh, with that. So here's, a, here's what I always tell people. If you want to see where you land and how you do this, I think one of the easiest test cases for this is uh, Genesis, is the creation account, right? Because all of us are bringing something to it. Um, and, and typically, the way that most evangelicals are going to approach Genesis is based on what scientific worldview that I hold to. That's how I'm going to do it. So if you're watching this right now, you're probably either a young earth or an old earth. That's probably it. And you probably only see Genesis. And I'm greatly, uh, you know, characterizing or caricaturing people now at this point, but it's okay. Um, but most of the time we bring it, I'm old earth, I'm young earth. Um, that's what we do. And so if, if you're old earth, you're going to find, sometimes you'll see, and I think there's some guys who try to do it. They try to, do, they try to, put it in. They, they try to do it well. Young earth guys will try to say, hey, here's what it is. It just reads like this. And here's the years. I'm going to show you that. But, but we bring that to us now. Uh, the problem with a lot of that still is all of that stuff 
is is still um, what I, I would guess I, I would categorize it. You got, you got special revelation, which is the Bible. You got general revelation, and general revelation is still us trying to figure things out. We're still working on it, um, and, and I don't think the science is settled on that because, uh, man, I'm I'm still confused as can be when it comes to. Who's right? Why is it that in one evangelical camp, I remember being at ETS uh, in, I think, San Diego one year. And in one ETS booth, you've got the old earth guys. And on the other end, you've got the young earth guys. And we're both looking at the science, right? And, and, uh, and, and so what my thoughts are, okay, well, why don't we try to approach the text without that right now? Why don't we just begin? I'm not beginning. I'm not concerned about the years. I'm not concerned. I just want to understand what does the text tell me? And what's the major points for that first? I think that stuff is super helpful later on, maybe from an apologetic discussion, but I don't necessarily need to know, was the world billions of years? Was it millions of years? Was it hundreds of years? Was it a thousand years? Do I need all of that right now to truly try to understand what Moses meant? Um, I, so yeah, I, I want to try to start and take as much of that out and just look at the words and become familiar with how Moses wrote right. to truly understand what Moses was trying to get across there. And, and just carrying on, I mean, how, how many times have you come across Genesis 12, one through three, you know, as soon as we hit Genesis 12, we have a dis definitive break in style and, uh, development of the Genesis story. And that's bunk. That, that's baloney. Uh, Genesis 12 finishes off uh, a Toledot section that is the general literary structure of Genesis. Uh, there's nothing special about Genesis 12 from a literature standpoint, but from a historical standpoint, we have made a break from proto-history to history that we can yeah. really engage with. And so that, in my mind, has been a historical assumption that has somehow made its way into commentaries to say, here's the break. Uh, all of a sudden, we get out of mythic history into real history. And that is because there was a dominant view with science that said all that stuff up till Genesis 12 was myth and not reliable. And that was scientific and historical. And you see commentators making peace with that rather than just say literature, the, the book of Genesis is actually structurally held together by genealogical sections uh, along with human uh, interactions that take place. And the only thing remarkable about Abraham is that it's much closer to a time that, that we can validate through archaeology and history because it's not as old. But that's not really, uh, we, we're misrepresenting the text using those tools. And, and then what happens is that becomes a dominant view and people forget why we're saying that Genesis 12 marks a, a unique feature and a, a, and a, a clear break with what came before. Uh, that's the calling of Abraham, just, yeah. just to be clear. Yeah. Um, but those are the kind of things that I, I get so frustrated with because, you know, you get to a certain point, you realize that's a that's being sold as a definitive truth when it's an assumption. And in my estimation, it's a dubious one. And, and that's what happens over time with, with these tools. And I, I was actually reading uh, an Easter presentation from, from a faculty member at a, a different school. And uh, it began with, uh, now, in terms of the Easter accounts, the synoptic gospels disagree with John on the timeline. And I understand as an academician that that is saying that we are having trouble with the timelines sometimes making them fit between the synoptic gospels and john but i don't want to tell someone that they disagree because i don't believe they do disagree i'm just saying you know I, i'm much more comfortable saying that we have um we have some work to do to try to understand the sequence of events and that's that's okay for me as an interpreter let's get to work 
but because redaction criticism comes to the table and it says that Matthew had his own purposes and goals and Mark did, we then actually will pair books against each other that are really in the same word of God and they should be universal, beneficial, not challenging one another. And, and in my mind, again, another exterior lens that was brought to the text uh, in order to try to parse out uh, extra meanings, you know, so Matthew's yeah. telling us this and Mark is telling us this. And uh, my view of scripture says Matthew can never disagree with Mark. Uh, yeah. And so those are the, the things that bother me because again, that was an external structure. And I actually think redaction criticism has a lot of positives, but there's another, there's another lens. So I guess one of the things that I think, here's some of the, pre the presuppositions that I bring to the text, right? Um, is the whole canon of scripture uh, is coherent, speaks to itself, uh, that it is without error, um, that it is a unified work. Um, I believe that that is to where the limits of where I should look. I don't need to be looking beyond the canon of scripture to understand the text of scripture, that God gave me everything that we needed within Genesis through Revelation to understand his word. And if he needed to give me something else, he would have given me something else with it. That being said, I, I, I believe uh, that even within the text themselves, to be understood, you've been given everything that you need within the text um, to pretty much piece together what you need. So, for instance, when, what I mean is you have the whole canon to help figure that out. But I think even the text itself, for the most part, uh, is written in such a way with those concerns in mind that how do I understand this? So I'm a, I'm a student of John Salehammer, um, and in his uh, Introduction to Old Testament Theology, he wrote these words. I think it's pretty interesting. He says, uh, our task is not, to, uh, is not that of explaining what happened to Israel in Old Testament times. Uh, though worthy of our efforts, archaeology and history must not be confused with the task of exegesis in biblical theology. We must not lose sight of the fact that the authors of Scripture have already made it their task to tell us in the text what happened to Israel. The task that remains for us of the readers, uh, as, uh, as readers is that of explaining and proclaiming what they have written. The goal of a text-oriented approach is not revelation in history in the sense of events that must be rendered meaningful. Rather, the goal of revelation in history is the sense of meaning of a history recounted in the text of Scripture. And so what he's saying is that for you and I, my goal is not to try to reconstruct what happened in history, but my goal is to reconstruct what the text told me happened. Um, so I don't need to have archaeology or history or science to understand how the Red Sea crossing took place. What I need to know is what Moses tells me about what took place. Do I think it's interesting, and do I love, I love the um, Patterns of Evidence DVDs that have come out? Uh, his Red Sea Crossing one that he did was, was pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, looking for one of those, I think that's helpful. I want to know where those things took place. It helps, it helps me, I think, anchor me in my belief that the, the scriptures are true. That's that apologetic piece that I'm saying. Um, but to truly understand what I need to know about that event, Moses has already given me everything in that text for me to know. Um, I think one thing as well, and I'll pass off to you, is, you know, a lot of times we're told, okay, to understand the prophets or to understand these things, you need to have all the history that's going on. Well, actually, 
The prophets are going to tell you what you need to know yeah. if you need to know it. So, for instance, Isaiah. Isaiah will list things going on when he was preaching, um, what, who was king during that time, uh, who, who, what the conflicts were. And, and even though it may not all be contained in Isaiah, God has in his canon given us First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, to where then I can open, I think that's part of their purpose too, is for you to open that up and say, okay, now I can see what Isaiah was doing because I've got the canonical given text speaking into what that history is. That's all I need to know in terms of what the history is. Not can I go dig something up or find what some author has written, what he's dug out in the desert. Uh, I need to know what the Bible has told me about those events. And if he doesn't give me a history, for instance, if the, the prophet doesn't give me the date which he's writing, and a couple of them do, uh, do not do that, um, then I, I don't really need to supply one. It's not necessarily important that I anchor it to a, a specific time period. But when he does give me in the days of this or in the days of that, then I need to make sure I know what we're talking about. Right. And, you know, generally it's interesting, too, because you have the Gospels and Acts in New Testament doing a very similar function of what the historical books are doing in the Old Testament. So we've got a historical backdrop. So if I'm trying to understand the historical backdrop of Philippians, I'm going to go to Acts and I'm going to read up on Lydia and how Paul came and established the Church of Philippi. I've got a history. I, I don't have to in, inquire more, although obviously I'm curious and yeah, I'm going to jump into those uh, resources that might um, help my understanding flower and, and blossom. But the difficulty and something that you have to be disciplined at is always recognizing when I've left the realm of what I am assured of in scripture and I've gone into the realm of uh, historical speculation or scientific speculation. And uh, it's very difficult for people to make the difference um, or make the division and say, okay, I, I am no longer operating on known truth revealed in scripture. I am now operating on uh, probabilities. And, and, and there's value in those probabilities. Like you said, apologetics, uh, helping my own faith, grounding myself, but I, I need to, as a pastor, I, I look at those things and in a sermon, I'll say, I'm going to give you some history here, which may be helpful. We don't need this to really understand what's going on, but it might help put some background to the story. And, uh, but I try to at least explain Bible study. It, it, how do I say it? For a lot of Christians that have been a Christian for a long time, knowing history almost is put on the same plane as knowing the text and they're not differentiated. And so Bible studies become kind of a, uh, who, who has learned more about something outside of the text to kind of bring to the Bible study discussion. And the reality is none of that really matters. None of it really matters. And a lot of the time you're introducing things that may be false because you had an older commentary. Uh, so, you know, that's yeah. the part. And it may be false because we have a newer, uh, newer commentary and in 10 years we'll have something else. So, uh, we really need to be students of the text. And, and then I just think people don't, don't think of that. Uh, the, the assumptions you gave are in the text, right? God does not lie. Okay, that's, that's in the Bible. Uh, all scripture is inspired by God. So all of it is of God's word. And if it is, and God doesn't lie, then it is uh, cohesive, right? It's, it's unified. So we're, we're not even making these assumptions from outside the text. These are assumptions built within the text to tell us how to kind of measure and weigh uh, difficult passages. Uh, they, they have to go together because God's not a liar. And yeah. so, you know, that, that's uh, these assumptions even that we bring to the text have to be derived from the text. And, and, and so it, it does get to be tricky, but I think in practice, it's easier 
Yeah. It, it, it's it's you know, easier to read the Bible, right? You know, I mean, even Jesus taught his followers. If you look at Luke 24 and you see, it says he, he's going through the law and the writings and the prophets. Like he's taking them back through all of it and showing it's all unified when it's all there. He's not having to say, well, okay, look, Moses wrote these things and, and that was JDP, you know, that was from a, and that came later. You know, there's no sense of that. Like it's considered one unified work all the way through. I think where we get into a lot of the worst kind of area, my opinion as an Old Testament guy, is the worst kind of area we get into is when we start seeing this take place, especially in the New Testament. I think the biggest offenders of this are people who supply all sorts of random historical backdrops for Pauline works. So we don't like what Paul says about maybe uh, uh, sexual ethics. Uh, we don't like what Paul says about uh, whatever, you name it, whether, whether that's a role of men and women or whatnot. And so what do we do? Uh, well, we find a guy who has written a history to tell me that really what was taking place in Ephesus was, you know, uh, really it was just a bunch of prostitutes that he was against. And there were so many of them. So when we read the text, oh, it's not really about me. It's just about they had a huge trouble with prostitutes in that city. And so really that's what he means. And I'm just, I'm throwing out such a broad general example here. Um, but you know what I mean? Like, is that we, we begin to try to find whatever sort of history. Oh, it's not about this. It was really just about, he, he just wanted committed monogamous relationships. Uh, because why is because I found some sort of historical document or some sort of painted, uh, somebody told me or gave me an article about the history of the city in which he lived and which he wrote. So uh, that's where I think we get to the most as we begin to totally erode what, what the New Testament meant about certain things. Well, and, and that's the, the, the idea of these lenses that I'm bringing uh, interpretive lenses. And I don't always know that I am. Uh, but really what happens, I think, is people say, hey, in my tradition, we do it this way. Or personally, I believe this to be true. And I go to the Bible and find out that the Bible very clearly says something I thought wasn't a sin is a sin or a practice that I'm engaging in is not what we should be doing. And so rather than say, I, I need to repent from a bad practice or a bad uh, belief, we say, well, clearly I'm not reading this right. There must be some sort of tool I can lay over this to get a different answer. And I can decode this in a way that makes something clear, obscure, and then I can, you know, backload my tradition into the mix. And, and that, that to me is just such arrogance to bring to the word of God. The reality is it's not that hard. Usually it's very clear. And if there's unclear spots, you actually engage with scripture. And a lot of the times the, the question of women and men in ministry, uh, a lot of times people will go to Ephesians, sorry, Galatians 3 and make Galatians 3 the dominant text for all the other texts that exist. And Galatians 3 is not about leadership and ministry. It's about salvation. Uh, but Timothy 3 is about leadership in the church. And so that's the clear passage that should give us guidance. And the two passages are not uh, opposed to each other. We have one that's referring to salvation and that all are one in Christ Jesus. And we have another that says, but in the church, there's a way to, to work it out. And so you need to look at the clear passages, such as we find in Corinthians and Ephesians and the household codes and um, and Timothy, and you, you work through them and you should have to come up with a cohesive model. But the goal typically is, well, shoot, I felt a calling or I, um, 
I've already been ordained and, you know, clearly that can't be wrong because I had an experience. Therefore, I'm going to bring the lens of my own experience and bend the text to fit uh, and find, find a, a bunch of people that agree with me so that I feel justified in that. And, and even that is, is not a good determination of whether you're right or wrong. Uh, and hopefully every Christian hearing us today has had to struggle through something in the Bible that maybe their tradition uh, taught. And when they really engaged in scripture, they said, oh, no, I don't think this is right. Or, oh, no, yeah. I'm not sure it's right. And if you've never had that issue, then you're, you're not being, <laughs> you're not working hard enough. Um, but there, there's genuine hard things that we do have to work through and there's competing interpretations. But at the end of the day, there is a right one. And our interpretations are, are fallible. Yeah. But God's word's not. Yeah. So. Well, and I, I do think if we're really going to take 2 Timothy 3, uh, 16, 17 seriously, then we understand that scripture should rebuke us sometimes and it should correct us sometimes. And if I never find myself disagreeing or having a disagreement, if I've never seen myself corrected, that might be another um uh, that might be an issue, right? If, if all I ever find is that I can always have the text agree with every opinion that I've got and not shape me and say, hey, buddy, change, change that. Mm-hmm. Work on you. It should be doing some of that to all of us. Like we, we should always be growing as we encounter the text more. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I, I think this is a good start to kind of where we want to go with this. Um, but I do think you know, it's helpful for you as you listen is like next time you hear someone give us teaching on the text, listen to what they're going to bring in. Well, if in order to really understand this, you need to truly under, we need to go here first, right? Um, that's when you start to say in order to truly understand this, we have left, whether they mean meant to or not, we have left the realm of sufficiency of scripture. We have left, we have, we have jumped on a different plane now. And we're claiming the Bible's important, but also what I'm bringing you is important. Uh, like I said, I think there's a place for pastors to say, hey, you know, guys, I want to show you this. I think this is helpful, helpful for understanding. Um, but if, if I begin to make my helpful aids, my diagrams, or my, my little teaching points more than what it is, um, then we have, we have begun to leave the realm of sufficiency of Scripture and we're now letting something else dictate what the view of this, what the text really means. Um, so that's kind of where I'm done. I think we've got a lot, a lot more to go into this, uh, ways that we can stumble into this and other areas. But I think right now it's a kind of a good intro to this, man. What do you think? Yeah, and I, so I, I just give a challenge. If you're listening to this and you're reading your Bible and generally you are utilizing your understanding of history, I, I just challenge you to look at the context and look at companion texts and see, is there already history there in the Bible? Do you, do you need that extra uh, bit of information? And start looking. You might be very surprised at how much the Bible in its own context has given you everything you need for a very clear interpretation. So, yeah, I think it's great. Yeah, don't be afraid that you need to have a ton of stuff you got to bring with you. Like, if you got a Bible, and you can just read it. And I would say read the book as a whole together. Yeah. Like, you know, don't, don't just go, like... It, it, uh, it'd be like if I wrote you a letter and you decided you were only going to read the last paragraph. You may not truly understand everything I'm trying to say without reading the full letter in view, right? Read the whole book together, not the whole Bible. That would take forever for you to sit down. But like as you're teach, reading through an epistle, read it start to finish. You know, get the whole point of how he's talking first and then try to get that. But you can do it without having to say, well, I got to have this book and I got to have this book and I got to, 
and I got to talk to this guy. I got to go to the, you know, for me to truly No, you can do it. The scripture's sufficient. Amen. <laughs> you want to close this out? Sorry, I think I catch you off, man. So, well, you ready to, you ready to close out and be done for this time? Let's do it. All right, man, let's do it. Um, this comes, remember, this is the priestly blessings of Numbers chapter 6. Uh, may the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you peace. God bless you guys. Thanks for watching. And uh, we will see you next week around the same time. Bye -bye. God bless. Take care. <laughs>